Human beings have neither the oral nor the psychological capacity to withstand the awesome power of God's true voice. Theology unplugged. Hermeneutics. Herman who? The path of the righteous man is beset on all sides by the inequities of the selfish and the tyranny of evil men. Theology unplugged. I mean, uh, if God is omniscient, if he knows everything, and he wouldn't be God if he didn't, then he must have known, even before the creation of the world, the names of those who will be saved. Theology unplugged. Only let my errors be proven by scripture. Theology unplugged. Would you guys agree that Christianity is defined so much and it's how we act, but we do have some definite theological markers? Theology unplugged. We are continuing to talk about free will, guys. Uh, freedom of the will. This is a, one of those non-controversial topics that we pick up every once in a while. Whether or not we have free will. What is free will? I think last time we covered mostly a philosophical understanding of free will. And left um, with Sam saying that his Arminian friends would think he is incoherent in the way he understands free will. Because of the uh, responsibility that he says is still there, yet at the same time, us possibly not having true freedom in the sense that we often think of true freedom. And uh, Clint, you talked last time about the true freedom being the power of contrary choice. The you ability to so. choose other than what you chose. <laughs> it was a long time ago. Uh, lots of free will decisions between then and now. But um, trying to understand this, I think uh, trying to build up once again to where here, here we got the itch again. This is a difficult topic. It's something that uh, maybe we can say it's incoherent, but at the same time trying to figure out how in the world do we live whenever we uh, at least feel like we have freedom all the time, but maybe we don't have freedom to the degree that we thought we did before. And um, then trying to grab a hold of this biblically and saying, what is, exactly does the Bible have to say about this? Um, so last time, Clint, philosophically, true freedom, define that again. Well, w freedom aside, the bondage of the memory uh, forbids me from remembering exactly <laughs> what we said and didn't say. Uh, but I think we actually had more than one way we uh, parsed this out. But one thing I think bare minimally that we did say was that in any given moment, if you, if you actually have uh, the capacity to choose between alternatives, that, that you're free. Of course, we probably have to footnote it because then it was brought out that, well, what do you mean? Because uh, there's external uh, coercion, right? You could, be, you could be prevented from choosing physically or just because it's impossible. Or because it's irrational, um, and if that is the case, well, then everyone will agree that that you know. But but one of the things we were talking about if, now, I'm starting to come back to me now, is the uh, the concept that that you you are free insofar as it goes, but you are not free to choose what you want to do. Remember when we were talking about that? Yeah. You, what you most want to do, what you desire to do, is was what you will do, and you to 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 be so free that you didn't weren't bound to that would be almost to be free to be somebody else and you're not free to be somebody so, so else. So you're, you're bound to who you are at the moment, right? I mean, is that, 
do, do we all agree about that? We're, we're bound to who we are at the moment. We can't choose according to who we are not. Is that good? Yeah, I, I think the idea is that we will always choose based on what is the greatest and most uh, powerful motive in our heart uh, in accordance with our deepest and most um, intrinsic desires. Do you, do you control that? <clears throat> do you control what is the greatest desire of your heart? Well, that's kind of the fundamental question, isn't it? I, mean, I, I would you say... make a free choice. I would say no. I would say no. I would say that um, we always choose in accordance with the greatest desire of our heart. And that's why I, would, I like the language of free moral agency, because I'm a free moral agent in the sense that I'm not being coerced against my desires. Let me give you a quick example. Maybe you all remember this. Uh, quite a few years ago, maybe 15, 20 years ago, um, a man robbed a bank. I think it was somewhere in Pennsylvania. And the police finally cornered him. They, and actually, he was sitting in the middle of a street and he uh, was holding up a sign. He said, do not approach. He said, I have a bomb, uh, a, a vest, an explosive vest on. And it turned out that he had been kidnapped by robbers who said, um, and, and they put this vest on and said, if you don't go in and rob the bank, we'll blow you up. So he went in, he robbed the bank, and uh, he was apprehended. And the police didn't believe him. They thought he was just making this up as a way of trying to escape. And as the police approached him, uh, the true thieves from a remote distance detonated the bomb. The guy killed him, blew him up. So the question is, if let's say the bomb hadn't worked and the man had been arrested and tried for bank robbery, would he have been convicted? No, I don't think no, so. The, clearly not. <clears throat> clearly not, because he made a choice. He, he volitionally... Um, you know, he, he deliberated, should I, should I not? What is my greatest desire? Is my greatest desire to continue to live <laughs> or, uh, you know, to uh, obey the law? And so he chose to disobey the law, but he was not morally culpable because he was being coerced by an external force. And I'm simply saying that as long as you're not being coerced or compelled contrary to your most fundamental desire by some external force or power that you are legitimately free. You're free to be who you are at the moment, right? Yes. I mean, you're not free to be someone else, right? All right. You're uh, free to act in accordance with who you are and your greatest inclination. You said we're not free according to maximal freedom, so we're not maximally free to Yeah, and of course, else. the other thing is, if you if you use that same story, and, and you took a, what we would call a fatalist view, which is the idea that everything, every minute detail of the future absolutely must be of necessity. There is no contingency. Everything must be as it as it turns out to be. Well, then in that case, you would say that the man, not only was he just being uh, coerced by threat of of explosion and death but but the fatalist would say no no even the internal reasoning that he um the processes of his own mind whereby he decided hmm should i should i do what they say um you know because he, he had choices he could make but if you're a fatalist and you're a complete determinist then you would say no what he chose to do was inexorably necessary he couldn't it could not have gone any other way he was going to do what he did, and it could, and the future could never have played out. But it was still free. 
And, but but no, not a, not for I think not for a fatalist or, ter, or oh, a strict okay, determinist yeah, yeah. he wasn't. Yeah. Uh, because freedom doesn't mean anything. It's just it's just a puppet saying his lines, but those lines were written by someone else. Mm. You see what I mean? To me, that's more. Um, to me, that's the more difficult uh, line of um, of debate. And and I think that anybody who says that he had any kind of freedom, even within those parameters. Even given all the factors that made him who he was, social factors, genetic factors, all of that, if in any given moment he actually could have done more than one thing, if you say yes to that, you're not a fatalist. You're not a strict determinist because you're allowing for some amount of freedom. Mm -hmm. at, least, at least by definitions that I understand. Yeah. That's, and which, which is why I don't think there are very many real determinists. But there are some. Or consi consistent ones. Well, Tim, Tim, if if our freedom is we are free to be who we are at the moment, and who we are at the moment is not necessarily determined by us, do you, do you agree with that? Uh, First, yeah, I think that, yeah. Well, well, how how in the world how how can this be different than what he was talking about as fatalism? I mean, it just maybe on the inside, when we think about it ourselves, it's different, but on the outside, it seems the exact same as fatalism, doesn't it? Well, I, so what Sorry I keep thinking, no, what I keep thinking about a little bit is Lord of the Rings and how we're hobbits. <laughs> and so when you think about a hobbit and how hobbits live and how hobbits, you know, if you're going to try and drop a ring off and destroy it in a mountain, uh, you know, it, are they free when they're going now? Now, are there other factors at play that is contributing to a hobbit, you know, like is some elf lord have some power that is contributing to the hobbit is gandalf doing things that the hobbits are not even aware of that now the hobbits are still so kind of going down that road i i think one of the factors that i think about at least are i think that we can talk ourselves kind of in circles maybe if we are only talking about human influence on humans uh, but if there is, are non-humans involved in the universe, uh, mainly speaking, a all-powerful God, uh, that we, I think where we get in trouble sometimes is we think of God like he's a fellow hobbit and, uh, and that he is interacting with us as fellow hobbits and not interacting with us in the way that Gandalf would interact with a hobbit. Does I that thought you sense? were going to cite the scene where um, where he says to him, I wish the ring had never come to me. I yeah. wish I never... And then Gandalf says, So do all who live through such days. And he does that whole thing. And yeah. He doesn't, but uh, you know, he says, You were meant to have it. You were yeah. meant yeah, to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gollum was meant to. So in, in a sense, he's sort of appealing to a divine Yeah, plan, but if you, right? ask, if you ask him, like, are you freely carrying the ring? He would say, absolutely. You know, I'm free. If you ask Sam, are you freely, you know, with with him? And you'd say, yeah, absolutely. So it's okay as long as you feel right. I mean, even if it's not freedom, as long as it feels like freedom, we're okay. Is that, is that what we're saying? <laughs> no, I, no. I, I but think that's that a, no, that's an important point, though. Yeah. Is is self awareness a sufficient grounds for asserting freedom? And what I mean by that is, I think virtually all of us, except those who are um, a little bit deranged. Would, would argue, I feel free all the time. I, I deliberate, I make decisions, I make choices. I, even, even though my choices are an expression of my nature, 
Um, I my nature is something that that I'm I yield to. I consent to. It's not as if somehow I I feel driven against my better judgment. Uh, most people would say that, unless of course you have. I don't know. You know, I've talked with individuals who have um, who have felt. Let's take kleptomaniac for kleptomania for example. Somebody who says I I don't want to steal. Okay. I, I really I know it's wrong, and yet I feel this inner compulsion. I feel this inner drive that I find is irresistible. It's overpowering. It's overwhelming. And it's almost as if I disengage from my own self-consciousness and it's another person going into a store and shoplifting. Um, is, the, is that person not free? Because they feel as if somehow they're being driven by their own nature which they, to which they do not consent. They say, I know it's wrong. I don't want to do it. I don't want to yield. But I feel powerless to resist. Is that person legitimately free? Well, and that does get into what has been revealed to us is that people can be demonized as well. Mm -hmm. And so I know that that's a total side thing where potentially things could happen against someone's free will, uh, where maybe someone is. I mean, in pastoral ministry, I know we both encounter people who uh, truly are not free sometimes in their actions. What, what about, how does this, um, this kind of goes a little bit outside of what we were going to talk about, but... How does this, how do we deal with the issue of addiction? I mean, the whole debate about alcoholism, for example, is it a disease? Uh, and if it is, what does that mean? In other words, do you catch alcoholism like you do the flu? Uh, is, it, is it involuntary? Is there a predisposition in your genetic makeup that inclines you to uh, drink to excess, contrary to your greater desires to be sober? Um, so again, you know, the whole issue, do you hold an alcoholic morally culpable for his or her drunkenness? Yeah. And, and all I, of you I just sitting there stone-faced as a, you know, <laughs> give me an answer. Yeah. <laughs> I think that more and more that's becoming a bigger question in our society. I do think that where it's, in some ways, if you can understand why someone did what they did, does that still make them guilty for doing it? You know, if it's like, okay, a sociologist or whoever can can tell you here are all the steps that contributed towards this person and here are all the biological steps then are they still accountable for what they did and at least the US legal system to this point assumes yes what's that assumes yes right yeah that would say yes you are you're guilty for doing that even though we know why you did that well, uh, let, let me let me say this real quick then because I know that there's listeners out there thinking to themselves, well, there, there's a bunch of Calvinists in there, and they're talking about this, and this is their problem, and see the corner they have painted themselves into. And we talked last time about this being something that you teach in a secular environment, uh, having nothing to do with Calvinism or Arminianism. You mean in Clint? Yeah, Clint. Sorry, Excuse people me. can't see you point yeah. on uh, podcasts. Uh, <laughs> so... so it, let's say we move over to another side for a second. We say, gosh, we're, we're really in a corner here. What do we do about this? Well, let's jump over to, say, what an Arminian would do or somebody who does believe in true freedom. How do they solve this? I mean, don't they have the exact same problems we do in the end? I mean, you, you can't really be who you are not at the moment, right? You've got a choice. You've got something you're getting ready to do, and you can't be up. You're getting ready to steal. You can't be anything other than a kleptomaniac. How can you choose to be someone who you're not in order to make a responsible decision that is good and profitable and wholesome uh, in a way that 
you're you're making a good responsible choice. So it's like, do you guys know? Because I've asked a lot of my friends who believe in true libertarian freedom. They believe that you can choose. Uh, you can choose other than what you chose. You can choose against your nature. How do they explain that? I've never really come across a real good explanation that say, oh, that's easy. Here's how you choose according to who you are not. Do you, you see what I'm saying? Well, in an isolated case, you could. I mean, if we were playing a game and, and, and I knew that you're trying to predict my behavior and you know me pretty well, I may just zig when you think I'm going to zag. But because I'm, because I'm, I'm willfully thinking, okay, he, he would assume that I would choose this, A, because of uh, he knows me, and that's my tendency, he knows that's what I prefer, but I, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna choose B. Uh, oh, well look there, I just chose against my nature. Um, of course, that's just playing a game. I mean, I didn't, did I really just change who I am and like B better? No, I still prefer A, I'm just doing that to sort of get the one over on you. In a sense, we could sit around and play and that you, game all day. And you do that because you preferred to put one over on him. That's right. That was your greatest I'm, desire at right. the time. Well, what yeah. about, okay, what you were saying, though, earlier about the legal system recognizing... And this things. is Carrie. Yeah, it is. I, I, I shouldn't chime in, but I want to. Um, that that it, There's even a debate on, say, alcoholism or whatever kleptomania or whatever psychological bent people have, that there's even a debate on it would would at least lend itself to recognizing that the, the, these things are wrong, that there's something wrong. But, um, but the question of moral you know, culpability comes in. And I think that I think you have to factor in conscience and you know, whether or not people innately know that which is right and wrong. And I think that that's where our freedom lies in terms of having the faculties to discern what is right and wrong. But then... Uh, the bondage lies in the moral inability to act on it. And so someone could have a moral inability because of a genetic predisposition or because they're just lost or because they're human and fallen. So I think biblically the answer is that, you know, people ha are, are enslaved to their nature. And even as Christians, we, we battle that. And, but we still have a conscience as a result of bearing God's image. And that that's you know, and those faculties are free because they they know and they and they know what's true and they know what's right and they know what's good, and so that does that make any sense to where? To, uh, well, all? it does. I, I think it, though it still keeps the problem intact, though, doesn't it? I don't know that it does. How does it? Let, let me inter well, let me interject something here. I'll, I'm going to clarify terminology. If somebody has a uh, physical deformity or uh, brain damage, or because of some genetic um, um, malformation, I would say they have a natural inability to make a right choice. I wouldn't say they have a moral inability. A moral inability is an inability to which we consent, that with which we are in agreement that we find pleasing and satisfactory. So uh, an individual who says, um, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna commit adultery. You know, you, there was a Time Magazine article uh, back several year, years ago called uh, The Adultery Gene. And it's argue, trying to argue, some are, that there is some sort of a genetic predisposition toward infidelity and that that exonerates the individual from any um, moral judgment as to his or her choice. 
<clears throat> I don't believe there's a, a <laughs> an adultery gene, um, but somebody is unfaithful to their spouse, um, we would say that they are suffering from um, a moral inability. Or a, a mor- they want to commit adultery. They're not being compelled to do so. It is in accordance with their nature. Now, again, if somebody was um, threatening them in some way to coerce an immoral act, then we would we would say, well, they acted because of a natural inability, and a natural inability would get them off the hook, so to speak, in terms of any moral judgment. Well, I think I think that's the beauty of 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 Christ as well. It is like for me one of the reasons that I desperately want to walk with Jesus every day is because I do not trust the freedom of my will to make decisions that are for my best in many ways. And so, you know, like I need an external force being the Holy Spirit, uh, you know, Ephesians 1, that having believed that you are sealed with the Holy Spirit, who's your deposit guaranteeing your inheritance, because I desire for my will to be formed by something that is external to me. Was that desire an act of freedom? Well, so the way that you would ask me, I would say no. I would say it's not. And uh, and I think that Romans 8, you know, for those who uh, he predestined, uh, he you know, call it like that that golden thread of 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 from the beginning all the way through of being justified of of being predestined, called justified, glorified, um, and so. But I think though that once again, I mean, I kind of think of the hobbits here, where I look at Second Corinthians five, and Paul is imploring people to be reconciled to Christ, right? And so it's like, now what does it mean to implore people to be reconciled to Christ? Does that mean like he is? knocking against their free will until they finally say like, you know, okay, I I finally give in, you know, my first 10 attempts towards, you know, resisting, but now my will has been compromised by your imploring. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But that's because they have the natural faculties to recognize what Paul is saying. They have the natural faculties to, to recognize that which is true. And I think that can be supported in Romans. That they can, they know what is true, but they suppress it in their unrighteousness. But the thing is, when you talk about the freedom within Christ and being a slave to Christ and all of that, is when, you know, He comes in and renews us. uh, Those of us who have come to believe in Him, um, that act of regeneration, the the Holy (coughs) Spirit changing us, you know, uh, hearts of stone, hearts of clay, and and all all of that, Him, you know, entering in and and changing us to where our affections shift from self to Christ, not fully. I mean, that's the whole part of sanctification, but at that moment, that monergistic um, uh, act on on the part of God uh, changes us, and then from that moment forward, there is a synergism. There are acts of the will. There is freedom there because we freely choose that which we desire, which our hearts, as we grow in Christ and 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 the Holy Spirit transforms us every day, well, it, our desires change. It might be surprising to, to a lot of our change. listeners yeah. to know this, That's, but but whenever we're talking about freedom, we're talking about this in the sense of you know we're on theology unplugged, not philosophy unplugged right now, but theology unplugged, and we've got 
two camps, and a lot of people look at this and say, oh, okay, you guys are the Calvinist camp. You guys don't believe in freedom, free will. But the Armenians, they are over there, and they believe in free will, so I want to choose between those two. And it may surprise many of you all, when Martin Luther wrote his Bondage of the Will, he did not write that against Armenians. He wrote it against Erasmus, who was a Roman Catholic at the time. Arminians, surprisingly, would agree with us. They would agree and say, you guys are absolutely right. There's a, there is, and we're moving into kind of the Romans 5 territory. We have all fallen. We are all broken. Uh, we, are, we are all uh, bent towards our evil desires, and we cannot change that. And so everybody, at least within, uh, generally speaking, within Christianity, uh, Eastern Orthodox would be a little bit different, and as I said, Roman Catholics would be a little bit different, but on the Protestant side, uh, believe that we are in bondage to our will. Mm-hmm. We are in bondage to do only that which we are uh, we are uh, inclined. slaves to do. Inclined. Yeah, inclined. Uh, but here, here's where my Armenian friends would come in and say, "Okay, you guys, you got yourself painted in the corner. Let me help you guys out. Here's how we get out of this corner. We introduce this thing called provenient grace. I think we mentioned this briefly uh-huh. last time." But provenient grace comes in and saves you all. It says that your choice at least, and I qualify that real quick, at least whenever it comes to choosing God and choosing Christ, even though it's, it's uh, bent towards rejecting him, provenient grace comes in and kind of neutralizes it. It doesn't push you like you guys say, or, or at least compel you in the other direction, but it gives you a true freedom for the first time. So now you are not compelled to reject Christ. You're not compelled to accept Christ. That's how we get to the judgment. And we say it's okay at judgment because you made a free, true free will decision um, because provenient grace saved you. And the reason why you chose Christ or didn't choose Christ was actually at this point, you. So uh, is that good? Yeah, the only bad thing about it is... Is prevenient grace actually taught in Scripture? And I would say no. no. Sorry. What, what about, how about prevenient grace is necessary? That's what they may say. It may not be explicitly taught, but because responsibility is there, it is an implied necessity. Well, I think at least they recognize the necessity of the Holy Spirit to do a work on someone's heart. Yeah, I mean, yeah. And that's, that's where there's agreement. But after that... There's no agreement between those two primary camps. The Calvinist would say no. He doesn't afford that to every human. Because isn't it Pelagius? Pelagius is the guy who said we have outside, on our own, we have the ability to choose Christ. Or we're, we're, we're well, not fallen sense, until we're again, fallen. In a sense, we do have an ability, again, to assent to true things. We have the natural faculties, and we just lack that moral. Well, you say the moral ability, oh, Pelagius. Oh, okay, right, right. I'm just, I want to, I don't know if y'all have even clarified that. But no, I, we, we haven't. We have the natural faculties because we bear God's image. We know what's true, and we can assent to it. And Roman scripture tells us we know what's true, and we just suppress it. Um, in our wickedness. So our wicked moral, you know, our moral bent towards wickedness suppresses that truth. Even if, but, even if prevenient grace is correct, though, does that save anything? No. No. Prevenient grace doesn't actually save anybody. It supposedly just makes it possible for a person to uh, exercise a legitimate free choice in, uh, in responding to the gospel. So like you said, it neutralizes the effects of depravity. 
It elevates man from his fallen condition up to a state of what we might call moral equilibrium. Now my nature is no more inclined toward good and God than it is inclined toward wickedness and sin. I'm in some sort of a, a state of moral equilibrium. The balance has not yet been uh, displaced by an act of my will, but I'm now free to make that choice um, apart from the influence of a predisposition. So like Romans 3 saying no one seeks God. So provenient grace mm-hmm. would be a post-Romans 3 is like, okay. They would affirm it, Romans 3 first. Yeah, like, yes, that is true. Yeah. No one seeks God. Now provenient grace has gotten me a point where because of God's work, I could potentially seek God now. Something tells me that Sam has never preached that sermon where he says, now, brother, God has cast a vote for you, <laughs> and Satan has cast a vote against you, right? Is that how you do it? Uh, you are correct, sir. <laughs> <laughs> well, but you know, anytime there's a difficult thing to resolve, people try to solve it by plugging in yeah. something. And in a sense, you know, the provenient uh, grace idea, in, in some ways, maybe, could we say it like this, that like, if somebody looks back on their experience and says, yeah. wow, I was dead, I was, I was hopeless, there was no hope for me. But God had grace, and here's what he did. Well, the traditional kind of reform view would say, um, he gave you the grace to believe. Yeah. Maybe this sort of backs off of that just a little and says, no, 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 I mean, he, he gave you the grace to be in a neutral position where you could. But, I mean, in a sense, though, I, I always appreciate that people are wrestling with a thing. It's sort of like the Trinity itself, you know, it's yeah. like an attempt to sol- resolve something that is sort of complicated with various passages. And in this sense, like we said earlier, not only do we all sort of feel free, but we all have to live as if yeah. there's some that freedom is some kind of a real thing. Yeah. All, I almost would go so far as to say that in everyday life, we we almost have to live just like we're all libertarians because every passage, as you quoted Tim, every passage that implores you to something is almost implying it, and pre- if I don't want to say pretending as if because that kind of belittles the idea, but you know it's it. It seems to assume it, and we just are forced to live this way. There's no sense in which the our doctrine of full total sovereignty can can sort of bleed into the future and govern us in a bizarre way where we say, "Okay, Lord, m- make me do what I'm supposed to." I mean, unless you're praying like Augustine's prayer we mentioned last time, like give me change yeah. my will and make me want the right thing. But I mean, in other words, I can't just say my hands are freely. Lord, where will my hands go? Make them, make them move somewhere. That's sort of silliness, right? I mean, yeah. we, we have to act as if we're free. What choice do we have otherwise? I think maybe we need to actually open the Bible in our next podcast yeah. and look and see what Scripture says on some of these matters because there are several texts that actually address this point, and I think we need to explore them. Thanks for listening. If you're enjoying Theology Unplugged, let me tell you about some of the other resources we have available. Visit us online at credohouse.org and browse over 2,000 articles on everything from the Crusades to gay marriage. Sign up for email updates and get the latest news, event announcements, and special deals before anyone else. Connect with us on social media. Just search Credo House on Twitter and Facebook. And you can always email us at theologyunplugged at credohouse.org. We want you to be part of the Credo community. Please partner with us in making theology accessible and pushing back the intellectual attack on Christianity. Thank you.